0: BAFTA creates platforms for open debate, and so the views expressed in this programme are only those of the contributors. Hello and welcome to the BAFTA podcast. Today we're at the
1: BAFTA Filmmakers Market. A collection of talks, masterclasses and advice sessions for people working in the industry.
2: We're all looking to take the next big step in their careers. So if you want to know how to get a producer or an agent or some money for your first feature, this is the place to
1: be. Stay with us.
2: Hi, I'm Mark Salisbury, about to chair the uh, Directing masterclass debate with Neil Marshall, Penny Walcock and Barrett Naluri. I just want to ask them about what it's like to make a film, what it's like to be a director being on set, working with writers, producers, being in the editing suite, if there's any tips for the people in the audience, whether they should make short films, just what it
3: takes to become a filmmaker or a TV director. Uh, Robert Watts, the producer of *Raises the Lost Ark, in mm-hmm. fact, put it best, I think he said that it's an education for life. That no two films are the same. Everyone pre- presents a new set of problems, a new set of challenges. And you're, you're just constantly learning and you're constantly dealing with these things. And, yeah. and that's what makes it so exciting. Because mm. the clip,
2: we, one of the clips you saw from you, one day, mm. that came from, you were mugged, weren't you? Yeah.
4: yeah. And, uh, and I had an encounter with the young man who'd attacked me where you know, we were both incredibly freaked out. And I just, you know, we looked in each other's eyes and I said to him, what are you doing? And actually, I, could, I knew that he'd heard me as well, and I now know who it is as well. But anyway, it was—it was really either for me at that point. It was a kind of life thing that either I had a choice of wandering around looking over my shoulder, feeling afraid, or I had to go and get to know some robbers, you know. So that's—that's that's what I did. But actually, in that clip that I chose, where the, the guys are outside and then the girl comes down the car and she's rapping, while we would. Shooting that scene because there was a gun there. Somebody called the police, and the police turned up. In the, we were basic i mean, that was like a raid. And they came out with these guns ready to shoot, you know, one bullet in the head. And that was—I um, was going, I know, "It's a film set," you know, but it didn't really look like a film set. I mean, that was nothing really, actually, in, in terms of that film. In terms of the difficulties we had, but it's the sort of thing that doesn't happen to you every day, does it? And you, you can't really plan for it, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so,
2: so, what kind of things happened on, on that particular film then?
4: Well, you know, there were all kinds of things. I mean, there was one day we were about to shoot the opening scene, and, the, you know, again, the police came and they were empty casings, and, you know, the whole area was cordoned off, and we weren't allowed in there one of the main actors after he'd taken part for one day was um, one day's shooting didn't turn up the next day. And that's because he'd been threatened by some other people who had decided that somehow the script was disrespectful to them and they were going to kill him if he Took part in the film, so he vanished, and I had to recast that, that day because we had this low loader that we only had for one day, if she's using the car. So I just thought, okay, yeah, you know, I'm going to move this person, this person, and you just go, okay, this is the situation. And then two weeks later, he turned up and he said, Well, I've persuaded them it's all right. And I said, Well, I'm sorry, but it's too late, you know, that we'd shot half the film. So he kidnapped me. Um, <laughs> so, those are the kind of things that happen. <laughs> yeah, so, um, but, you know, in a way, it kind of doesn't matter, does it? Because
2: You can't just leave it there. What happens next?
4: <laughs> well, you know, I eventually got out of this situation somehow, you know. But it was it was touching home. And then the same guy on the second film, which was a documentary actually, got me in a part when I I really thought I was gonna die, you know, pulled a gun out. But if you kinda mess about in that world (coughs) that these things are gonna happen, you know, and so I don't go around going, Oh, call me you know, because well, make a film with them actors. Instead of casting gangsters as gangsters, you know, it's, it's going to lead to some problems. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> but actually, that's what I like to do, you know, so I'm not repentant about it.
5: The amazing thing is that the movie always gets done, or yeah. the, it always ends up being finished. So if you get that in your head, whatever yeah. shit the day whatever. throws at you, you know, yeah. you know at the end it's going to be finished. Yeah. So however much someone's screaming in your face or the finances are giving you grief or whatever, you know it's going to be done. And, yeah. you know, it's going, to, it's going to come out. It's like, yeah. you just, it's part of the
3: process. Yeah.
2: So <laughs> neither of you have been kidnapped? By Hollywood producers or
3: mm. really? anything? Uh, no, not yet. Okay.
2: <laughs> <As> always, <laughs> <that. Anything come. laughs> I want to talk a bit about being on set and shooting. I mean you said you don't like the shooting part and, and Hitchcock I as know, well. It's, it, it's all know. on tape now. Yeah. If yeah. I don't like the shooting part. But, but yeah, you're in the your company yeah. Hitchcock didn't like it. Hitchcock yeah. said he, you know he made the movie in his head beforehand and then got on set and it was kind of boring. Yeah. When you arrive on a set you said you don't like storyboards. I mean Woody Allen also says he hates preparing, he hates knowing what he's gonna do for the day. What what are you you like when you arrive on set first thing in the morning. Do you know? Your, have you got your shot list prepared? I mean, what? Just take us the audience
3: through. For Dog Soldiers, I spent literally months shot listing and storyboarding the entire film. And literally, by the end of the first day on set, it was in the bin. It was like it's the moment you start working with actors, all the, all your plans of like, oh, I want you to sit there and walk there and do that, and just like that has on the storyboard. Um, it like goes out the window, because you know, they want to bring something to it too, which is absolutely right. Mm. And this is my first feature, and I'm of learning this process, but it's just like, uh, but, uh, but now it's like, okay, I storyboard certain action sequences, maybe stunt sequences, visual effects sequences, things that need to be locked down pretty early on. But with the rest of it, I hate with Barrett, I hate storyboarding. I love to work with the actors. I love to like block out and, and play around when we're on set. The other thing that happens is that because <laughs> I don't know, you know because I like, actually get on set to direct something maybe once every two years, three years you know if I'm lucky if things are going well, yep. you get on set for the, like, I, I arrive on set on the first day for the, for a brief moment, maybe over breakfast, for a brief moment i'm like. Shh, shit, I've forgotten how to direct yeah. <laughs> Like, What do I do, what do I do? Yeah. And then at some point, I don't know, it's just like moments later, maybe the first AD or somebody comes up to you and you get talking and you just suddenly get back into the swing of it. But there is that little moment of panic on the first day of like, I've forgotten how to direct.
4: Yeah. <laughs> what do I do?
3: How do you get somebody in a door? Yeah.
4: <laughs> yes. What
3: do I gonna do? Do you yeah. rehearse? I don't rehearse a lot, mm. Money because I haven't had the opportunity more mm. than anything on the budgets so I've been working. I just never get yeah. the time or the cast isn't available. Mm. I definitely appreciate doing it when I can. I did. Mm-hmm. I just recently did a pilot um, down in South Africa for Black Sails, this uh, new TV series, and that actually offered me the more rehearsal time than anything I've ever done, mm-hmm. and and it was great. It really saved time on set mm-hmm. later on. So
6: um, I loved it. I thought it was great. I'm actually not a director. I'm a DOP, so um, I was really interested in what. You know, they had to say. I think that thing about um, the more big budgets you get and um, the quicker actors are, and but the more pressure there is. I mean, that was very interesting because I don't work in super big budget stuff, so that was fascinating.
7: Bharat Nuruli really was talking about the things he's had to deal with on set and about actors who, you know, don't really want to go according to the script and things you kind of had to work around and compromising things.
8: So uh, yeah, it's definitely given me a lot more to to think about in terms of what I'd be able to do do if I one day become a filmmaker. Hi, my name's Edward Hicks. I'm head of film, television and radio at RADA. And I'm about to do a session uh, all about the actor and director relationship. I I hope that we can start to explore some of the insecurities that actors often have on a film set. Does anyone want to kickstart us with a particular question that they're dying to get us going with? Yes.
1: Um, When you're doing a very impactful moment, a very emotional scene, when you're kind of working with actors, do you kind of have it just in your head that you know that perhaps the best performance might be the first one and you kind of go for that one?
8: Well, I have to be honest with you. I I was always of the belief that the first take is the best take. I always used to. and And then when I started working at drama schools, I discovered actually that's not always the case. There are definitely actors out there who are better after a few goes at it. And if you find you've got an actor like that, you're in real trouble when you've got one who gets it on the first take and then their performance loses something. Meanwhile, the other one takes a couple to warm up and so you've got this sort of going on and it's, you're like, ah! But, but you have to ask yourself, why does the actor who needs two or three to get going, why do they need that? Why do they need that? Well, that to me smacks of an actor who's not feeling comfortable part of the job of the director is to remove the insecurities from the actor now if you put yourself in an actor's shoes for a minute they walk onto a set possibly they've only got a couple of days on this film they don't know anybody and they've got all these people who are maybe a week into the shoot now and they all know each other and they've all started to bond and they've all got a chemistry and you walk in billy no mates not knowing anybody and the first scene you're doing is the scene when you're in floods of tears And, oh, by the way, this is the person playing your wife who you've just met in makeup. And then you walk on the set, and they kind of light it, they block through it roughly, final checks, someone from makeup comes and shoves a brush up your nose, and then this prop person comes over and hands you a prop, and you're like, I didn't even know I was going to have this prop in the scene. And then someone else comes over and goes, oh, don't sit on that chair, make sure you sit on that, because we haven't lit that one. And then they go, Okay, stand by, and action. Well, of course the act is going to be crap on the first take. Unless they're hugely, hugely experienced and they just have a real inner confidence. I talk to my students a lot about, you know, having an inner confidence. And a lot of it is about, you know, they have the talent, but it's about uh, trusting themselves with that talent. Because it is a frightening environment on a set. So I think a major part of it for the director is actually remind yourself, you know, what can I do to make this easier?
1: Mm -hmm kind of set the tone
8: with the crew if you know Absol- what uh, sure abs- the absolutely absolutely and I, um, what I love about a really good crew is that they have the ability to melt into the background a really sensitive crew they're aware this is a tricky scene I, I mean I've seen boom swingers you know where they're standing there and in a rehearsal or, or while the director is giving notes to the actor, they can't move because it's a, you know, you're working in a tight space or something. So they just lure the boom, they just stand there and they even look away, just not to catch icons. Because they get it, they get it. This is what I took away from this session,
9: was just an idea that it's not a difficult science in many ways, it's just about being confident with actors, it's about being confident with yourself and having an idea of what you want for the project and to have a good dialogue with actors.
10: You don't want to treat them like a puppet. It's more about uh, asking them questions, because that was the one question I want to ask. How, when the actor isn't getting what you want them to say, if they're not seeing the line, if, the fact that you can ask them questions to bring them out, that was, a, that was the most interesting, interesting thing for me, yeah.
11: Hi, uh, I'm Matthew Bates. I'm an agent for screenwriters and directors at Sales Screen, and I'm here to talk on a panel uh, about agents how they work with their clients and how agents find clients.
12: Hello, my name's Kate Watson. I work with Sarah Putt Associates as an agent for all HODs and we're here today to help highlight how to find the right agent and give some good tips, hopefully.
11: So from the show of hands, it it looks like pretty much all of you, with a couple of exceptions, haven't got an agent. So what I'll do is break down what agents actually do and why agents do it rather than just our clients doing it by themselves. So what agents do as a whole is, and this is true of actors agents or artists even have agents doing this, we look after the business affairs of of our creative clients and that's the aim. If you're someone who's creative you want to get on and, and be able to give as much time and energy to that and if you've got someone helping you with the business side of things, then that's enormously helpful. The way that agents make money is that we charge a commission on the money that we earn for our clients. What we don't do, uh, and this is kind of important when, when you think about taking on an agent, what we don't do is charge for our time. So for example, if you use a lawyer or an accountant, you're probably paying an X amount per hour but agents only make money when their clients make money and we take a percentage of that anything you wanted to
12: the, yes I mean I suppose one of the most important things to be aware of is that relationship that you need to establish with, a, with, with an agent so we invest in you as you invest in us and in many ways you're, you, we're only as good as our clients so it's a very collaborative relationship and, and it should be and it should be fun and you should like each other
11: Uh, particularly with our writers uh we give a bit of creative feedback at at various stages if somebody just has a good idea and wants to talk to me about it at a very early stage on the phone happy to do that right the way through to someone saying i've squirreled myself away and i've written an entire screenplay can you give me some feedback on that my point generally with my creative feedback is um I'm not a, I don't think I'm a very good script editor. That's not my job, but, but my job is to make sure that um, the people are working in the right sort of areas in the right kind of ways. I, I, I need to understand the market, and, and if someone phones me up and says, I got this idea for a television show, this, that, and the other's going to happen, I can go, no, that ain't no way that's going to get sold, or that's a brilliant idea, but I already know that someone's doing pretty much exactly that over here. So I do that kind of creative feedback. If it's, if it's, for example, a finished script, then, or even a, a, a good treatment, uh, then I find it important to give creative feedback because I don't want stuff leaving my office going out into the world that isn't up to scratch. Uh, it doesn't do me or my other clients any good if I'm sending out stuff that's not good enough or it doesn't look like it's well enough worked or that just is wrong for the kinds of people I'm sending it to. So particularly as I say with our writers, uh, we give creative feedback. Is it something that, that you end up doing? Yes,
12: I mean, we, we do read, we read all the scripts that the clients are sent so we can have the conversation with them. It's something that not all agents do, funnily enough, which is quite bizarre, but uh, depending on the scale and size of the agency, perhaps. Probably determines it but it's a very important process. Um,
11: You're making uh, qualitative des- decisions about script saying I don't think that's an interesting one yes. for you to work on as yes, an editor. Yes, as, as
12: opposed to the more intense work that you <laughs> do on it with your with your writers so it's all about reading the next script and spotting what's out there because you've got to love what you do it's very important.
11: Um, we should. We should, um, we should uh, 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 see if anyone's got any questions. I mean, we could bang on for hours. But... We could. We could. <laughs> yes. We're talking a lot about the
5: trust between the filmmaker and the agent. So, how would it work if the filmmaker go and find his own work?
12: Well, that's a good question, and we get that a lot. Basically. The trust factor is that if you're coming to an agent and having that agent manage, help manage your career, then there has to be the trust. Now there are times we do a, a special deal for commission on perhaps a production company that that clients work with a lot and we will do a 5% commission, but we ultimately say we take 10% of everything. Which sounds pretty brutal, but we work for it and we couldn't survive without that. If we said, oh, okay, you keep your own work, we really wouldn't be able, it would be more like a charity. You can never really determine, okay, you might have a few personal contacts that always come to you and that's fine, but if you're going to trust and build the relationship with your agent, you send those people to your agent to talk to us and we carry it on and hopefully build and grow from that. But that's the trust thing.
13: Yes. Get, go. It's just very quick questions for a friend. Do you represent storyboard uh, artists?
12: Actually, we do have one. Okay. But he's also a cinematographer. Uh, he's also a DOP. <laughs> okay, fine.
3: Hiya. Hi. Um, just wondering, but when someone sends your CV and their showreel, would you just check their, sh- like, you look at their sh- uh, CV, but would you look at their showreel? And if you like it, would you then look at their work first and then maybe speak to them?
12: As what, as a... As a as,
3: sorry, as a director.
12: As a director. Because I
3: actually send my stuff to... Uh, oh, so thought, did you? Yeah, and they said, um, maybe next year.
12: Oh, <laughs> okay. I know, I'm afraid. The books are pretty much closed at the moment, but um, we actually, we'll take out CVs that we like the look of with the showreels we try and look at everything but it's difficult because there's so much material, but if we like something we see, I mean the best thing you can do is send an online showreel, okay great because that's now, that is the best thing it's quick, we look at the CV first and if we don't really recognise anything on the CV but it looks interesting then we'll look at the showreel, so we do it that way round
11: um, we're a bit more ruthless. Uh, on our website, we say, "Don't approach us without a recommendation," and that's because we have, we know that we will disappoint people otherwise, because they'll just hear nothing back. So we're quite tough on that sort of thing. If, what I say to people, if you're determined to approach people, and you know that, that the chances are they may not uh, actually even kind of open the email or, or read the CV. Uh, Perhaps the, 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 you can do that if you've got something very exciting to tell them. Mm. My short film has been shortlisted for a BAFTA. My short film is playing at Edinburgh. My, something, yes. something glittering and exciting that will catch their eye, then it's worth it. But just sort of... you know, I'm, I've nearly finished a new short film where I've almost finished this script and I've done these things in the past. That's not going to be enough at an agency like us to make us go, okay, we'll, we'll make the exception.
14: Hi, a question for Matthew. Um, in terms of screenwriters, you accompany the screenwriter through the career, their career. What if they're late starters? Do you have, are you, do you, are you open to taking on people who are older?
11: <laughs> I'm not at all worried about age. <laughs> as long as those three things are, are, are in place, the, the, the talent, the commitment, and um, the ability to, to get on. There's no point in pretending that there isn't an industry bias towards youth. It just exists. And, and if I was to say anything else, then I'd be lying. There's something about saying, here, I've got this 24 year old who's just doing amazing things at the royal court. Somehow that just makes people excited. But the most recent client I took on had made a film before, and, um, but they, they'd made that film in 1987. Uh, and they'd gone off and had a whole life in between and sent me a script, which I just thought was outrageously good. And I sat down with them, talked them through all the difficulties, but said, OK, if you're on for this ride, then uh, your script is extraordinary. I know people will meet you on the back of it. Let's see where we get to.
14: How old was that person?
11: Uh, I don't know their age. Um, But probably uh, over 55.
14: Okay, thank you. So I'm Polly Stokes. I'm a development editor at Film4. And I'm going to do a kind of Q&A on Film4 and what I do in my job. I suppose people will want to know how they can get funding for their projects, um, but let's see.
1: At the moment, I'm getting log lines like millions of them, and then I'm going to look at treatments and narrow that down, and then potentially meet. I'm thinking my strategy is going to be meet maybe like ten writers of those treatments who I think maybe there's something there, and then meet them and see if there's like a click. I figure yeah. we should click. Yeah. um And yeah, I just wondered how you visualise that first conversation. Going yeah. How what your approach is.
14: I've had meetings like that as a producer and also as an exec, and it's probably a different conversation. So I think that the producer conversation, I think you're right that it should, does need to be about chemistry to some extent, because as a producer, you will work with that writer so intensively that actually it's really important that you feel like there's a kind of easy dialogue going on, and there's a desire from both of you to have a conversation that's kind of sustained and quite intimate. I think maybe something else that I've always tried to do is, I mean, this sounds so obvious, and I'm, yeah, you probably know already, but you know, I always try and talk about references, and I always try and talk about other films because I think that you have to try and build up a shared vocabulary. You know, you might have read something, and you might say, "Oh, this film reminds me a little bit of um, Mary Poppins," and they might say, "Oh, oh my God, I, you've got it wrong. You've misunderstood the tone." It's always helpful if you can find some films that become your part of your language in thinking about tone or story or character or genre or whatever it is. Because I think that in terms of a producer-writer relationship, if it's successful, it's because you have the same vision. And that's what you're trying to check in those first meetings. So you've read something and you have a vision of what it could be. And that's, what, that's why you want to meet the writer, presumably. But you need to check that that writer is also wanting to develop the film in the same direction. Because you could be like, I think this is funny. And they could be like, in the next draft, I want to cut all the jokes out and turn this into a horror film. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So I'd say a combination of chemistry and, and they're kind of a shared vision for the project. Is that helpful? Yeah, it's so helpful. Good, really cool.
15: Yes? Hi there. I'm, having made one feature film and, mm-hmm. and looking to make a second feature film, I wonder what's the the minimum I could come to you with, could it be an idea and the film and say, well I made this and I think I'm going to make this next, yeah. would that be enough or do you want it to be a script?
14: Well absolutely look at an idea, you know probably because you've made a feature what will be great is if we don't know that feature, if you send us the DVD or a link to it and Something in writing about your idea. I mean, it doesn't need to be a treatment. could be, like, a page. A okay. could be a paragraph, exactly. And we could just say, this sounds really fun and we don't have anything like this, so let's have a cup of tea. Or we might say, actually, this sounds like... quite like something else we've got on our slate. Why don't you show us again when you get to treatment? Or we might say, actually, I know this is something that Film4 would never do because X, Y, or Z, so take it somewhere else. Yeah, so we could, yeah, we could definitely feedback on the basis of the paragraph.
15: And then the people viewing the screen as the same people doing the reading, or would you actively no, look actually, at the screen as...? we
14: all read, I mean everybody reads. The readers don't watch, they read. And they're trained to, they're kind of, they're trained to um, read scripts in a very particular way for us.
8: I think that's probably been one of the best sessions. Uh, of the day and it was very open, very thorough. She answered all the questions quite openly and it's kind of stuff you won't find out on the website, you wouldn't find out on otherwise. So it was great. I had no idea that the National Theatre had a bookshop that contained the very latest new plays that have just been put on by kind of cool fringe people for example. So that's like a useful place for me to go and find the very latest plays as opposed to have to wait a couple of years till my friends tell me about them and they've already made it big.
4: She was great and saying that they're there to help people and to give fantastic feedback at
16: the same time. My name's Alison Small. I'm the Chief Exec of the Production Guild of Great Britain. In the session today, we're going to be talking about budgeting and scheduling films. We have with us Samantha Waite, who's a producer and production manager, and then Nico Hagan, line producer and producer, and also Terry Bamber, who's a first assistant director. So we had our panel earlier about budgeting and scheduling which the Production Guild were running and we're just having a debrief now to think about what happened during the session and the kind of questions that came up.
7: As there, there, there always is this uh, sort of pressure from the amount of money you can raise for your script. You know, just how you're going to pull it off. You've got a script and, and that's where your AD comes in and they will come to a production team and say, look, you will not be able to do this in under 40 days and you've only got £2 million and you've only got 28 days. So at some point there has to be a sort of realisation that we've got to change the script a bit without destroying the story and that's what comes out of the sort of realities of breaking down a script. There there are certain things in the script that just will make your budget rocket
17: I think it gave great insight into aspects of um, budgeting and scheduling that I didn't even think about I didn't even bear in mind the fact that you know it's one thing having a character change their clothes but you have to think of the decor the inside if you're stepping outside it's no longer 1950 you're back in 2013
16: so yeah it's gonna eat into your budget Taking that on board. <laughs> From the questions that were asked it would seem that the majority of the audience were operating in a low to no budget bracket. Um, so I think that the panel that we had with the, the breadth of experience that they did have was a really valuable um, to the audience that was there today. There's a question that came up about, you know, how many days can you work a crew? Well, you know, that, that's a difficult question to answer, but obviously the, the point is that you can't work your crew until they can't work anymore, until it's dangerous, and, until it becomes a problem. But, but there are things that people need to learn, um, and that comes through experience, and the more you do it, I would argue.
13: Uh, I think the lesson to learn would be to actually, uh, comp- I mean, compromisation within the budget, when you're actually looking for financing, bond, you know, bond funding they spoke about. Uh, I also would say maybe just being able to be flexible Uh, And also have a keen eye for detail, make sure that your your script, uh, when you're doing your script, you make sure every aspect of the production is actually just detailed out, so that way there's no surprises.
12: Hello, my name is Anna Macdonald and I'm introducing the session on behalf of the London Film Academy entitled Meet the Story Editor. The speakers will be Rachel Wardlow and Cry Bradley. So this means to be an interactive session, uh, but it means to give people an idea of how to work with a story editor and how they can best benefit them themselves and their stories.
0: You know, for me, having done a lot of development in different guises, I think, there's, there's a sort of reading to reject which... You know, I started doing it before I got employed to, to read to make better which is for me far more enjoyable um, and when I, when I did do my readers reports they were always very long because I always felt like I had to fight the battle of this unseen person whose script I'd sort of summarised I think development works best when you recognise that basically someone's called stop in the middle of a really big journey, to have a drink and a chat about what it's been like so far and to decide which pathway you Mm. take next. That's really what good development is. If you are reading just to dismiss something, I think Mm. it can be soul destroying for both the person who's had their script read and and if you do it enough, it it does start to feel quite miserable. So maybe that's what he, he meant. I mean, I think the idea that someone can fix your script is perhaps a little bit simplistic. I think really, for me, what a good story editor does is, is go back to basics, you know, sort of why do you want to tell this story? What is it that it... What, where did the first idea come from? What is it about it that it appeals for you? Who do you think is the type of person that wants to see it? What is it that you feel your character's struggle is saying about life or about something that's affected you? And really, you've got to dig deep into who that person is, and what it is they're trying to do. And once you've found that, you help them write their story. Mm-hmm. That's the best way of, of, of developing. And
7: the other thing, just to say, that it's a bit of a generalisation, but in the, in the United States, your position as a writer is rather more precarious than it tends to be here. Um, but it's rather more unusual, and people do get fired here. I've been fired many times. <laughs> um, well, three know, times. Most, most um, times. But the process in which the, the writer gets sort of unceremoniously booted off a project and replaced it by someone else is it, much more common in, in the US than it is here. And I, I think that the, 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 the kind of ethos
11: of doctoring goes with, with that sort of uh, attitude.
1: Um, I thought it was quite interesting what you were saying about genres in mm. that it seems to be a bit of an obsession at the moment to go around breaking genres, breaking genres yeah. not putting things in a genre or yeah, playing Internet. with them yeah. And, yeah. but do you think it's quite important actually that a film does identify itself with the genre in order for the audience to I, I kind think of... it's
0: about expectation and audience expectation so at, at the sort of best level of this and it is a big debate that will, will rage forever more I expect an audience has to kind of know what experience you're delivering them in some way and so genre is the safest way of marketing that of bottling it of getting someone to stand, either looking looking at a newspaper and picking what they're going to see, or standing in a cinema and kind of having a hunch what that ride's going to be like. I really like hybrid genres. I think they're great, but I think what's difficult in kind of approaching that and the, and the mistake that I see most often in scripts is it starts as one thing and then it swings to the other and then it swings over somewhere else and you're like, ooh, what is this? And, and that's sort of hope, I feel, how an audience would feel watching it. You sort of come out a bit dazed and confused. But Really, you, you've got to kind of be very clear about how you're merging those genres. So Shaun of the Dead was essentially a rights of passage rom-com that parodied the zombie genre. That's what it was. First and foremost, the emotional experience of that was sort of, do I choose my girlfriend or my best mate? Really. And that's what the character drive was, not it? And it knew its audience as well, which was obviously the spaced audience, but it knew that it was dealing with film buffs, as they're called, or avid film goers. Which we all are, and I think that's another big part of it is recognizing that audience isn't necessarily a lot of film buffs. Mm. It, it's people. <laughs> some people only go once a month, and it's speaking to them as well as you know filmmakers like us. I think that's a big, big part of it.
4: Yeah, I thought it was a um, really interesting session actually to get an idea of like what a story editor does um, in relation to you know working with producers or the the actual scriptwriter and where their position is like in a company. I, I had no idea. The role of a script editor, so it was very useful, actually.
1: Rachel's role was a very positive role, and also hearing from Clive that it's not about um, taking offence, but actually choosing your battles as well, and seeing it as everyone's got the same goal at the end of the day, so everyone should be working together.
7: Hello, uh, my name's David Pope. Um, My company's Advanced Films. Uh, We are a production company and provide training and consultancy internationally. Today I'm chairing the Shooting People crowdfunding panel. We're going to hear from three filmmakers who have had campaigns and what we're looking to do is learn from their experience, get some do's and don'ts and Get an overview of how that has, the crowdfunding campaign has fitted into their larger strategy. Uh, we have Ben Blaine, who's the director of Nina Forever, Charlie Lynn, who is the director of Beyond Clueless, Rebecca Johnson, director of The Honey Trap, and Tarkin Ahmet, who is the founder of Please Fund Us.
17: The video took qu- really quite a long time. You know, obviously, we weren't working on it constantly, but it took over a couple of months, you know, sporadically. And also the production pack, I think we had that already, but that took quite a long time as well. And you can download that, and that's that's a whole load of nice pretty images and blah, 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 and that can also go out to financiers. I mean, I would say, you know, that we did. Our materials took quite a long time to put together. As I said, I think it's quite a hard proposition to marry. It's also not a happy ending kind of film. Uh, you know, um, Revolver, who are the main distributors of, of films aimed at a market, market have gone bust. You know, people are not particularly, like, jumping up and down, ready to finance a film like Honey Trap. But uh, you know, the crowdfunding campaign and those materials did attract a distributor to come to us mm. and, and want to come on board. So it's really worth putting your best foot forward. But then it, it can be, as you were saying, you know, I've seen fantastic things that are really lo-fi as well, but it's about whatever it is, you have to, you have to um, tailor it to what you're, what you're trying to convey and, and do it with as much passion as possible.
7: So Ben, um, you and Team Blaine, who were working on your behalf, did you what? What did you have to do in terms of any kind of supervision, or were they kind of people who were bringing their talents and expertise to it? Yeah,
13: I suppose what I'd say is that there's kind of like there's the lead up to this particular campaign. I think the other thing to be aware of is that there's a, a really handy hint in the term crowdfunding because crowd comes before funding, and we kind of. Thought two or three years ago that there's going to come a point where we are going to want to reach out to an audience who like <coughs> us and we've always known that our films are the sort of films that you know will have a following you know and that there are people who won't like them and people who will adore them and you know years ago one of our short films developed its own fan site on Facebook that we had nothing to do with and we're like okay that Tells you something about the sort of people that like our work. They're not normal. Um, <laughs> and, and it's the first place you can go to when you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we kind of thought, quite a while ago, well, we need we need to be in touch with these people. We need to find them and we need to enhance them. So we've you know we've been on Twitter for a while and you know we've been building and you know not always as much as we'd like to try and pull together a kind of an audience that we can say, yeah, you're our audience. You like our stuff, you care about us. Part of that process was actually working with uh, Katie McCullough, and she, uh, years and years ago, she actually did work experience for us. Uh, Then she came back to us, kind of, she ended up working in Ryman's, and she came back to us a couple of years later, and she was like, I am completely uncreative. Can I come back and just, like, do some more free work for you guys? Just, we were like, well, why don't we pay you one day a week, and you can come and look after our social media stuff. So it's like, you know, we. Tweet a lot, but Katie kind of like finds all sorts of fun stuff, and she kind of you know was really handy in that. So she was one of the people who we then brought on board to run the Kickstarter. Her and her and Harriet, who we'd previously got them working together on something else, and so yeah, we could leave them very much to their own devices. So the four, you know, me and Chris had the broad outline of the strategy. You know, we knew that all campaigns start well, go bad, and end well because. The, the, you know, the, where's the story? You know, the story is, hey, we're gonna do this thing. The next bit's very boring, and then the last bit is, oh my God, we're not going to be able to do this thing. That's an interesting story. Mm-hmm. So we always knew that there would be that arc, and we kind of thought, well, if we run it over the course of the film, then we would be able to cut together this trailer, and that would help. I think the other key thing, though, was actually being very clear in our heads as to what our actual ambitions were. I think it's very easy to kind of go, oh, crowdfunding is the new thing, you've got to do it. I don't quite know why, but you've got to do it because it's what new people tell you to do and they have courses on it and you should do it. And you go, oh, well, it's to get money. And if you think of the sums of money involved, there's a big gap between the general public's perception of what things cost and what things cost in film. And you know, we very specifically, in our video, talked about the money that Chris and I were able to put into the film. Our total budget was 150,000 pounds. And it's like, we thought, well, if we say, we're making a film of 150,000 pounds, most people are gonna go, well, what are you complaining about? That's a lot of money. Go and make a film with 150,000 pounds, little realizing that in terms of making a film, like little, yeah, that's like saying I've got a paper round. Can I buy a house?
7: Brilliant, fantastic. Thank you, guys. We've got about 15 minutes for questions, and there are mics around. Let's just start over there. Yep.
1: So uh, I was having a conversation with a producer recently who said that um, crowdfunding is obviously really taken off in the states, and you know Zach Braff or whatever's making his movies this way and that they were having a problem with, um, maybe it's a slightly more litigious society than we are, but with people suing because they didn't get their T-shirt or you know the movie never got finished or whatever. And I just wondered what the kind of, what are the kind of contractual structures in place behind this and how kind of like, yeah, I'll give you a fiver, see you when it's done, or how kind of, who's kind of regulating it and how, how does this work? I don't, okay. maybe you can give some insight.
7: Um, I'll ask the panel for their advice, but I would just preface that by saying that you should you should be talking to your accountant um, and uh, your lawyer, probably. So anything <laughs> that's said up here falls under the remit of opinion. Um, does anyone have any comments on that in terms of legal structures? and?
17: I mean, I would just say, you know, at the end of the day, don't promise what you can't deliver, uh, so be realistic. And to me, it's like there's a certain amount of trust involved, you know, there is, and... Um, uh, we've always said we we're, we're, we're going to make up this film no matter how much we raise and that's that's the case you know even if we're making it with very little money indeed and we don't reach our 250 entire budget so i mean the chances to be honest of being sued if if you observe those two things
9: are, are pretty slim
7: do you have any comments on Yes, from the guess, platform's perspective,
9: yeah. So when you're choosing your platform, I would say you know definitely look around at the pros and cons and understand: do you want an all-or-nothing platform, or you know, whatever you raise you can keep? Because again, can you really deliver what you're promising to deliver in terms of the pledge rewards if you only hit half your target? So can you you know can you offer somebody you know a, an opportunity to be an executive producer if you actually only raise half the money and then you don't make the film? So again, all or nothing, or. T- Take anything. You know, we want to look at those two types of platforms. The other thing I would say is definitely keep your community engaged. You know, definitely update people. You know, these people who are backing you are doing it because they want and to support you. So you know, don't be afraid to say I'm being pushed back on my timelines. You know, something's cost a little more, something's cost a little less, but I'm using the money for X, Y, Z. You know, keep people updated, tell them what they're doing, bring them along the journey. And if you know, typically, if things are delayed, push back, or you know, you need to go to another funding round. You know, people are doing it because they want to make it happen and they'd be you know, of, supportive of that.
7: I think it's also fair to say that crowd, crowdfunding came from the creative community and mm. that the traditional legal and financial sectors are still getting their heads around how they're going to respond to it. We're at two o'clock, so I think we need to wrap up. I just want to say thank you very much to all of you. I want to say thank you very much to our lovely guests. And uh Thank you very much to BAFTA, Sergeant Disc and Shooting People for um, inviting us to come and play and uh, I hope you have a fantastic day at the Filmmakers Market. Thanks very much.
5: I think one thing which I'll take was what Rebecca said about if you are doing a crowdfunding that it's almost like an average of seven times before somebody's actually going to click on the link and pledge to it and I thought that was quite profound. It comes down to having a proper strategy in place um, and really just planning it out and also having building a, a social media following before Four, you launch your crowdfunding campaign otherwise you've got no one to drive traffic to the site
6: oh, I was a bit sceptic about crowdfunding but it just seems a lot more interesting and fun now than it was in my mind, I thought you had to be very organised and very disciplined but they're showing that
1: you can allocate those jobs to other people and focus on your strengths
6: Hello, I'm Bryony Henson. I'm Director of Film for the British Council and I'm thrilled to be at the Sargent Disc BAFTA Filmmakers Market because I'm going to be talking to a whole panel of festival programmers and selectors in a Meet the Festivals panel the idea today I think it's twofold really we're going to be talking to the festivals in a sort of general sense really for the benefit of new filmmakers why festivals you know there are so many different opportunities now for films to get out and about online you know know, endless other opportunities why still bother with the kind of old school festivals that was first and the second is to give the we've got uh, seven festivals lined up in front of the audience and we're really going to be quizzing them all about the differences between them you know we've got very very big mainstream national festivals the BFI London Film Festival, Bradford International Festival and then we've got smaller niche festivals, the London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival the Sci-Fi Festival new models like the Flatpak Festival or Bird's Eye View which specialises in women's cinema you know there's a whole different range of festivals on offer and we really want to be able to get the programmers explaining what they do and why. Okay so we've got Kate Gerrever who's the new creative director of Bird's Eye View which is a festival that has been running for about six years and it's focused specifically on women filmmakers we've got Michael Blythe who's the New programmer of the London Film Festival, the BFI's London Film Festival, our National Tech Festival. Uh, We've got Louis Savvy, who's the director and founder of the Sci-Fi Film Festival that uh, uh, spreads across London. Uh, We have Emma Smart, who's one of the programmers for the London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival. We've got Philip Ilson, who's the director of the London Short Film Festival. He actually also programs shorts for the London Film Festival. Um, We have Ian Francis, who's the creative director of Flatback Festival. That's a new model of festivals uh, based up in Birmingham and then we've got Tom Vincent who's the co-director of the Bradford International Film Festival which has been going for about 19 years now and going from strength to strength that's a whole lot of people yeah well a whole lot of people and presumably a whole lot of different opinions so I'm really looking forward to hearing what they've all got to say that's
1: very true Uh, question do you
6: watch the films before you look at the production bump or do you look at the yeah. production stuff? Because I'm yeah. sure it would be sure to
0: watch the film.
5: I never see the production bump. Yeah, no. I mean,
10: it goes in the bin a lot of the time. Because, you it's, you know, too it's too
0: many sad. films. You can't read all the stuff that comes with them and watch the films as well. There's just not enough time.
18: I, I would say though when you're, I guess it depends festival to festival I think with the London Film Festival because the volume of submissions we, we receive. I do think, especially with feature films, it does help to have a short synopsis. Say what the running time is, put it on the front of the disc, things yeah, like that. Yeah, it yeah, does no, make a difference. Yeah, we don't makes. need pages and pages of beautifully produced press notes and you know, press kits, but, you know, but an, an A4 page really with some quickly. basic information <laughs> Once we've selected the film, yeah. right? When we've selected
10: the film, if you haven't got it, then, then we're upset with you. Yeah, we, know, we, we, we we hang don't on, want hang it.
6: on. Is, there's really important stuff coming out here. Let's get it really mm. sorted. So what do you all want, want to see when people submit? What should people be put including?
18: I want to see the name of the film. The of the You'll film? be surprised how many yeah. people send in a film yeah. without putting <laughs> no, the name of the yeah. film down. Yeah. Runtime. Run I, I want a disc with the name of the film written on it, the yeah. runtime on it, the director's name on it. I yeah. Want yeah. A contact? A contact, exactly. I want a, a short synopsis and yeah. maybe some brief cast and crew. It's important to remember as well, if you're submitting a film via an online link, you're doing, say, a Vimeo link, have that at the bottom of the Vimeo link, have that information there, because again, could. we get sent a link, and, mm-hmm. it's like, and I'm just like, I'm clicking on it, like, this could be four minutes, this could yeah. be 400 minutes, I don't know, and I need to yeah. know how much time I've got to watch these films, and, mm-hmm. and okay. so I think you, yeah. you don't yeah. want to make us do more work than we kind of <coughs> to resent having to do kind yeah, of extra yeah, work okay. and finding out what your films are about
10: if you use without a box as a service the one thing i really dislike about without a box is that when i do have an interest in a film because it might be some films we you know we watched several times, right? I, I'm, you know, we, It goes in our kind of long list, and then you'll go back and re-watch a few things and see again whether it fits into the vibe of the program, or there's a load of zombie films gonna be in that one, so let's look, this one might fit, you know. When I go back to Without a Box, to go then and find out that there isn't a press kit, there isn't a download of images, there isn't a synopsis, there aren't all <clears order> the <throat> contact that you haven't bothered to fill in a proper Without a Box form, then you kind of just say, oh, well, they, if they can't be bothered, I'll okay. look at the next film.
6: And you raised an important point there, which is that kind of skip <coughs> forward once the film has been selected, what else do you need? Do you have, you have a good still?
10: Oh,
15: yes. good God. selection good, of stills. Good selection yeah. of stills. You must have heard this before, but you, you can't be overstated, have a good still, really think about it, at, you know, at, at pre-production stage. The films that make it into Bradford International Film Festival, the short films, I would say, <sighs> three or four have got stills that are going to make somebody who's got not much time and is choosing what to see think that's the one for me they're not going to bother with the synopsis right away they're going to look at the still so really think about that early as early on as possible Uh, it's so important for um standing out
6: is that the same for you in the kind of films that you're showing it's probably not quite as important
18: but yeah i think it does definitely help And, and the other big thing is Digital has not simplified things at all, like in terms of codecs <laughs> and resolutions yeah. and formats, it's a bloody nightmare. So, yeah. uh, I don't think we've been clear enough in the past about what our technical requirements are, but there, there isn't really a holy grail. But we've had all sorts of issues going between various types of movie file, and we've gradually shifted from compiling everything onto beaters to having a kind of a media player with it all compiled and nicely edited, which is in theory, lots, a lot cleaner and greener, and more straightforward, but still creates various technical issues. Yes. Brilliant.
6: Okay, question down here.
4: Hello, um, I am always interested when I see, for example, in the Edinburgh Film Festival, the London Film Festival, that there are um, short films that are in under little umbrella sort of titles mm. uh, that are specific mm. themes or whatever. And I'm wondering, it's kind of like a chicken and egg thing. What comes first, the films or, and then the titles, or the titles and then the films? Because, and do you, if you see an amazing film and it doesn't fit under, say you've already programmed these genre-specific or whatever, theme-specific programs, what happens um, if you have an amazing film that just doesn't fit into
5: those? I mean, I've got a, f- a couple of things to say about this because I'm quite interested in this subject. But I think that if the film's good, we'll shoehorn it in in some capacity. And I always program in themes. Um, at the London Short Film Festival we do, and at the London Film Festival, but, you know, you can basically just move move stuff around, shoehorn stuff in, make the theme quite sort of loose, loose themes is something that I've got quite good at, so yeah, it doesn't bother me at all, I, you know, we'll make the film fit somehow if it's a film that you want in the festival.
6: The, the, the beauty as well is, presumably, particularly with, with you lot, Michael, those themes that you've got in your festival, they're so vague. You know, you, your yeah. audiences spend their whole time arguing about, well, the humps, that should be in debate, not <laughs> in <the> thrill. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the beauty is having a, 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 a theme which can be a, adaptable.
18: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think Philip's completely right. I think, you know, if there is a film that we really love, we'll find a way to put it Brilliant. in. And, exactly, and it's like, you know... Exactly.
15: i just say mention about um, our policy, um, at bradford international film festival is not to package unless they're retrospectives which we're doing increasingly it's not to package new shorts together it's to pair them with feature films so we curate that way as a, as a different way of thinking about it. something else to to look into what will be done with your short what you know what will it be programmed with
0: again what you could do is actually look at the previous year's mm. film festival catalogue you know they're online and, and then see what they kind of like did with their shorts and yeah. and think to yourself oh well mine's kind of like that so that'd be a good festival to go to
9: to submit to it's and i think for us, sometimes we
10: just you know you've you've seen a hundred shorts and there's suddenly there are three that you really like and they're all about space travel so you just think oh, okay well let's try and yeah. see we can find another three yeah, to that's... go in there and there's a there's a pattern then we'll yeah. get a scientist in to talk about the reality yeah. of it and there's lovely piece of programming it's yeah. got you know that's
5: and in Europe, they tend not to program in themes. So I was at both Hamburg and at Clermont-Ferrand festivals this year, and they were both programs—just international program one, That's international quite program two—and yeah. they were just the most random selection that just did not fit yeah, you together. That. In Hamburg, in the middle of the program was a 15-minute silent film of a railway track, incredibly <coughs> gallery-based. Um, this is after you've watched two dramas and it, I, you just wanted to leave the cinema. I recognise was... that, and,
15: and bad curation can let your film down. Bear, bear
10: that yeah, in that's mind. True. That's true. Um, is
6: your
0: question very short? Very short. Go for it. Yeah. Hi, sorry, I'm first time filmmaker. I haven't made my first film yet, but I'm looking to do so. Um, in preparation to go to a festival, what would you say would be your top tip for someone who hasn't got any experience yet? What would you say would be
15: top tip to make a, to a good a film? <laughs>
9: yeah.
6: I, I, is, that, is that to get your film in a festival or to once yeah. you're there? Uh,
15: well, assumed assume you've made a good film, which I think is probably yeah. a given. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> figure out what the f- festival can offer you and plan what that might mean. The festival might be able to give you accommodation while you're there, but not, not um, fees, fees to get their transport there. Uh, figure out who's going to be looking after you and meet them and socialise.
6: Anyone else's top tips? Business
0: cards.
15: Business cards. Yeah, absolutely. Business no. cards. And
16: give
0: them to everybody. that yeah. you, you Give them to the drivers that might be driving you because they are going to meet someone else in their car in half an hour. There's networking drinks. Business cards or postcards?
18: Business cards. Business, Business
0: cards, cards,
6: okay.
10: You yeah. carry
18: more They're much easier. Yeah. Okay, Michael? But don't be too pushy because there's that. always one filmmaker every year that you're just like, oh, leave me alone. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't okay. be that person. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. I
4: think everybody's different. I like postcards because then you can see the thought that's gone into the kind of, are you a marketeer? Do you understand how to position your film? Double-sided fil- business card. <laughs> <laughs>
10: double-sided
4: business cards,
6: yeah. All right, brilliant. Yeah. Claire Stewart always on these panels suggested um, who works with, with, on the London Film Festival with Michael always says once you get to the festival go and find the person who programmed your film yeah and yeah, yeah, yeah no that's them. also
10: yeah um, because yeah. you
6: have a mutual thing, yeah. right? yes okay all right I'm so sorry I think we could probably do this all day but I think you've got some other stuff to do today so thank you so much to our panel I found that really fascinating I hope that's been really useful thank you very much.
14: Yeah, I thought that was brilliant. That was a really good session. Um, The fact that they listen to what the directors say and that the directors have a choice in um, the sort of films and the sort of festivals that their film can be entered in and also all the different genre festivals. Um, Also I'd never considered um, distributing my films overseas to festivals um, in Europe and in Japan and America whereas now I will and especially places where English isn't the first spoken language in the country. I thought well that would probably bar an English language film but now I think it definitely wouldn't Um, and I don't know, I was naively thinking that um, Spanish and German and French film festivals might not be as interested in our work, but now I think that they definitely would.
19: Hi, I'm David Jenkins. I'm the uh, editor of Little White Lies magazine, which is a bi-monthly film mag made in East London. Hopefully I'm here to talk a bit about how filmmakers can interact with the press better, what we look for in in films, in press materials, in interviews, and what we think makes a good film and what would work in our magazine. What I am really interested in is... How you select the films you will write about Mm. and when you will write about them. You know the FDA, they're they're the kind of Film Distributor Association and they have a a, a schedule of, of films that have been booked into UK cinemas. Certainly every film magazine website that I know of would follow that quite rigidly. It's a kind of crutch almost. It's a sort of, well, that's something easy to follow. It's the films that are coming out. It's the films that people are going to be talking about. I think you have to pay like 50 pounds or something to the FDA list to to become an official screen. I actually put a a screening on at the ICA a couple of months ago of an independent animation film called It's Such a Beautiful Day. It's by a director called Don Hertzfeld. He's worked in hand-drawn animation for about 10 years. He's never had, you know. This is his first feature film. It was it was a sort of sixty-minute film, and it totally independent. He made it all. Every he made it fund, made it funded it all himself. And I basically went to the ICA and said, "Could we screen this here?" And I can, and, I, and I'll and I'll present it. I'm a big fan of his, and you know, we'll make a kind of night out of it. And they they, they said yes, fine. And I said, can, "Well, could you pay the fees so it gets on the FDA list?" Because once you've done that, because it got on the FDA list. It got reviewed in The Guardian. It got reviewed in, in all the broadsheets. It got reviewed in Empire and Total Film. Its name was uh, was out there all of a sudden. And what was initially gonna be a one weekend run, it ended up running for like f- a month in the, in the big cinema. Now, can and anyone add a listing to the FDA thing, or do you, are specific people permitted to? I think you have to have a distributor atta- attached to the film. And with this film, because it was independent, it was kind of sub-distributed through ICA films so they they were the kind of distributor attached to to it such a beautiful day and I think this is more and more of a case that you can you, if, if you can do a deal with us with a cinema directly they could make the connection with the FDA
14: really helpful um, especially the last half of it about how to uh, if you like attract the press to your film and also uh, how to do a good interview really important because um, I'm you know trying to make my first feature and as I am assume most of the people around that table were
1: and it was also interesting to hear what makes a film being selected by them to be reviewed
18: I didn't know about the FDA and I was like oh okay that's uh, so that's where the film press goes to uh, find out about oh what's coming out and what to talk about so you know it's knowing that is really good if i have a film and want to get film press to talk about it you know i know that this is a great tool to you know a first step towards getting film press attention
4: so the last session is over but the networking has just begun at the post event drinks unfortunately that's the one thing we can't convey on
16: the bafta podcast so we'll have to end our program here Remember, you can listen to the full discussions from many of the talks we've highlighted today at the BAFTA Guru website. And you can
1: leave us feedback at podcast at BAFTA.org. Thanks for listening and goodbye.